Good morning, and a very warm welcome to this exclusive Mass Challenge and HubSpot for Startups event, in which we'll examine how customer-centric sales and marketing drive long-term business growth. We're honored to be joined today by Brian Halligan, co-founder and chief executive officer of HubSpot, Carolyn Tisch-Blodgett, former head of marketing at Peloton, and award-winning best-selling author, Chris Denshin of Innovation Crust as our moderator. To the Mass Challenge Startups, welcome. You are in the right place. As usual, we encourage you to engage throughout this conversation by submitting your questions via the Q&A so that Chris can incorporate into the conversation. And to the broader community to turning in view YouTube streaming, thank you for joining us this morning. We know you'll find the conversation inspiring and illuminating. For you, note that the uh, chat and Q&A has been enabled, so just sit back and enjoy the conversation. So with no further ado, I'm delighted to turn the mic over to Chris Dunchen, Innovation Crust podcast host and author of the number one bestseller, Crushing the Box, 10 Essential Rules for Breaking Essential Rules. He'll be leading this extraordinary conversation this morning. Chris, I'm going to turn it over to you. All right. Good morning. Thank you, Kate. And good morning to you guys. I'm, I'm all the way from Los Angeles, so uh, it's a little early for me. I'll try to brighten it up for everybody. Uh, we're going to have a really great conversation. Brian and Carolyn have years and years of insights and experience, um, especially in this transitional time that we're all in. So I'm hoping that you get some really good uh, takeaways and some inspiration. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm excited to have this conversation personally, so I'm going to ask a lot of things that are nosy to me. Uh, so hopefully you guys will enjoy it as well. So without further ado, um, I would love to bring in Brian Halligan and Carolyn Tish Blodgett. Round of applause. Yay! <laughs> all right. <laughs> you guys look great. Look, we're all wearing green. How about that? You look great. No, 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 no. You look, you look great. <laughs> Uh, so I guess for starters, um, I would love for you guys to each do, let's say, let's say 30 seconds, if you can contain it to 30 seconds of an intro about, uh, what you do and, and why you do it. Uh, Carolyn, I'll start with you. Oh, sure. Um, I can definitely get into 30 seconds. So, uh, I'm Carolyn Tish Blodgett. I, uh, as of a few months, uh, a few weeks ago, I was leading, uh, marketing at Peloton, uh, for the last four years. And why do I do it? So I I would say kind of maybe two things. One is the ability to what was what was so exciting about Peloton is that we created a category from scratch. And so the ability to create a brand from the beginning and, the, and not even just a brand, but an entire category and really revolutionize a category you're in was an incredible opportunity. Um, and it's a product that I felt personally so passionate about. It was a product that I love, continue to love. I'm 37 and a half weeks pregnant and I went on my Peloton bike this morning. It is, it is a product I, um, personally love so much and I knew how great it, how much it transformed my life and could transform other people's lives. Um, so that was what I, what I was excited about. Sorry. That was longer than 30 seconds. Eh, it, was, it was good. We won't, we won't, so, hold, we won't I, hold you to it. There was no stop, stop watch. Brian, how about you? Yes, uh, Brian Halligan. I'm the co-founder, CEO of HubSpot. I mean, I think I, I guess I do what I'm doing because we like to help little startups, um, founders, early teams grow into giant scale-ups and help our customers realize their dreams and grow, not just grow and grow fast, but grow in a better way, a more sustainable way. And 
that that's what gets me going. Uh, can you explain that math behind you? I, I, I think I, I feel significantly less intelligent than you do. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't overthink it. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's okay, a, that's fine. <laughs> Somebody's home equation. Like, oh, it's very simple. Like, here's your profits in year one. Here's your profits in year two. Here's your profits in year three, year four, year five. And you discount those back to figure out the present value of your company or project, whatever. So it's just like a basic finance. Okay, so this is this will be pretty meta. Um, what'd you say, Carolyn? I feel like I'm back in business school. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, look, great, great segue. Incidentally, um, with the beginning of a HubSpot, you know, walk us back to why you even created a HubSpot and where you saw an opportunity for a, a company such as this one. Yeah, the beginning of HubSpot, it was um, a little unusual. My co-founder, Darmesh, and I were in business school together. And there were kind of two ahas that led to HubSpot. One was mine, one was Darmesh's. Uh, mine came, I was doing a stint, like an internship at a little tiny venture firm. And what the venture firm wanted me to do was help their startups grow and bring a growth playbook to them. And I spent lots of time to these startups. And they were all kind of doing the same growth playbook. They were buying a list and spamming people. They were hiring sales reps and cold calling people. They were doing the big trade show. Uh, They were hiring the big expensive PR firm. They were sort of this classic playbook. And the more I watched the playbook, the more I was like, marketing's broken. No one's listening. Everyone's got caller ID now. Everyone's got spam protection now. People aren't going to live trade shows anymore. Uh, People aren't watching TV ads and listening to radio ads. Like the whole thing's broken. And while that was going on, Darmesh's aha, he had blogged his way through business school. He had a little blog on startups.com. He maybe wrote two articles a week. Anything interesting you heard in B-School he'd write about. And holy crap, I was measuring his blog relative to my wealthy venture-backed startups. And he had a bazillion times more interest in his crappy little blog than my venture-backed startups. And, <laughs> and he was really clever at search engine optimization and really clever at early social media marketing and just quite good at, at matching the way he marketed with the way modern humans were shopping and buying. So we started describing the world as old-school outbound marketing, new-school inbound marketing, what he was doing. And then we said, well, it's a, it's a bear to do this stuff. You have to put in a CRM system and a blogging tool and search engine optimization tools and social media tools and a content management system. Really complicated. So we ended up building HubSpot as a platform to help people pull this marketing transition off. That's sort of how it got started. That's great. That's yeah. great. Um, Carolyn, similarly, you know, I think most startups reach a point where they're like, uh, we should think about marketing. <laughs> um, what was that inflection point when you came into the Peloton fold? And what, what was your mandate at that time? Yeah, so I think, you know, the early years of Peloton were really about building a great product. And um, they, to your point, they weren't focused on marketing because it was all about making sure that this was a product that they knew people would love. And then once they had that product, they then had that moment of, okay, well, now actually nobody knows what Peloton is and we need to go tell everyone about it. So that was when I joined in, in early 2016. And the mandate really was, um, aw- it was awareness at the beginning but it was a little more complicated than that because as I said before, it wasn't just here's a new product, go buy it. We were creating a new category. So we had to break out of, there were all these barriers around when people think of 
home fitness, there's a ton of baggage in that category. And when people think of boutique fitness, there's baggage in that category too. So we had to kind of break out of the two categories that people were putting us in and create something new. And that's where the marketing um, really became kind of centered to what we needed to do as a company. That's, that's, that's beautifully stated. Um, Brian, I think it's similarly, you know, once you build it, you have to put it out there. And yours is very meta in the sense of you're like, you're marketing a marketing organization. Um, what steps did you guys take to sort of approach critical mass in the, in the early days? Uh, one of the ways we described our marketing in the early days was how do we create, I called it a pain factory. And it's like, how do you help your potential customer understand that they have a problem, feel that pain, feel more pain, feel more pain, buy HubSpot to relieve the pain. And the way we did that, we have a little tool and people can use it. I'm going to put it in the thing. It's company.greater.com. Um, and you put your URL in there and it kind of gives you a report card on how good or bad you are in that marketing. So people put it in there and be like, everyone wants to get a 99, of course. And, you know, only 1% gets a 99. So they get a little report card and be like, who is, what, what is this? And then they go read our blog and be like, yeah, feeling a little more pain. Like it's not quite 99. I see why. And then they talk to our sales rep and our sales rep would do an inbound marketing assessment and really poke on that pain. And then to see a demonstration, be like, oh, I get it. I have all these problems and all this pain. HubSpot is how I solve that pain. That's sort of how I thought about marketing in the very early days of HubSpot. Yeah, and that's that's interesting. You know, <clears throat> excuse me. I think about what the idea of marketing usually tackles some form of pain point, right? Yeah. As opposed to like, here's our highlights. Here's what we do. Here's what the competition is. We see that a lot. But really, yep. great marketing solves pain points. Um, Carolyn, as, once you guys started to approach scale, you know, what sort of other pain points were you identifying for the, the consumers that you wanted to attract and, and retain? Yeah, I think that's that um, that approach is we we didn't call it as like inflicting pain on them, but it was basically <laughs> doing the same thing, which was getting people to realize again, when you're creating category, most people are pretty happy in their routine. I would say probably the same thing for Brian is people thought that they were doing a good job at marketing, I would think. So you really need to connect the dots with people and realize that there's a better way and that the way the thing that they're doing right now and anyone that's that's creating a new category would would say this if you think of Amazon or Warby Parker or anyone else that did that of realizing, wait a second, why am I paying $500 for glasses when I, when I shouldn't be? Or why am I you know, putting in my email address and, and my address and my credit card every time I'm buying something online? I could have Amazon Prime. Whatever it is that that you're that category that you're creating, it's getting people to realize that um, there is a better way, and that the the way that you're currently operating is of the past. So for Peloton, at the beginning, we didn't need to do as much of that because we were really for those early adopters. We were it was just about telling people that this amazing product existed, and they were kind of fed through the marketing funnel, ready to buy. But as we scaled, we did really need to spend more time addressing consumer barriers. So. One of the big ones for us was around value and getting people to understand that while it seemed um, a Peloton bike might have seemed expensive up front, when they actually did the math of what they were spending on their gym, their local fitness, whatever other fitness routines they had, there was, and by the way, split it between all the households, all the people in your household, the math started to work out in your favor. And it was actually, there was really tremendous value behind Peloton, but people weren't connecting those dots at the beginning. So we needed to to do that for them. We also realized that as we scaled, 
people weren't, we weren't necessarily only speaking to people that understood the value and the benefit of indoor cycling. So shifting people to understand this isn't just for boutique spinners. This is for anyone that wants a great cardio workout. This is a great cardio workout. So those kind of, we had to, the barriers um, evolved as we were speaking to a broader and broader target. That's great. It's it's interesting because, it, you know, I think the marketing is just such a sweet spot in terms of timing. And there's a question from the audience about that timing. Like, what is the... I feel like it's in most cases, an afterthought, you have to think about what brand is and what the statement is going to be and how that comes to life. Um, but most times you're focused on building your product. And maybe, Brian, this is geared towards you. You know, when someone signs up for a HubSpot, what is that right time? Do you usually advise them data-wise to come in earlier or later? Like, where's, where's the, the, the sweet spot in terms of timing? Uh, well, one of the things we noticed about marketing is people used to hire a marketer around employee 30 or 40, like relatively late in the life cycle of the company, that the leverage was really in, in B2B and the sales organization had all the power. Um, and marketing was a little bit arts and craftsy, people writing press releases and stuff. Um, but it was shifting, you know, we started HubSpot 14 years ago, feels like a hundred years ago and it was shifting and marketers started getting hired earlier. They were much more hardcore. They were content creators. They were more technical. And so part of what we tried to do is create a category around this inbound marketing thing, create a lot of content around it. We did a conference, we wrote a book, we had our blog, we had our greater tool. And then we tried to not just talk about inbound. We talked, tried to talk about marketers as a profession and, you know, tried to create this new type of marketer and arm them with the knowledge and tools they need to really grow. That was part of the game we were playing in the early days. And we've noticed that people hire marketers really. By the way, the interesting thing I see that's going on now is like, it used to be you'd hire your first like ops person in a company, like employee 40 or 50. Now I'm noticing it's kind of the same trend where ops people are pretty hardcore now. Um, they're pretty technical. And I mean, they're not a nice to have. They're a must have and they're real drivers in the business. So I'm knowing that as that revenue ops or sales ops persona getting hired really, really early in the life cycle of a company and adding a lot of value in modern companies. It's interesting what's going on with that now. You know, and uh, thank you for that. And uh, Carolyn, I think about, you know, identifying an ideal customer. You know, I think most startups feel like, all right, this is who's going to use it. And this is who we're going to target, target. And this is what it should look like and feel like. Um, but then sometimes data shows us something and our gut tells us another. How did you work out as far as, you know, what that approach, what, what assumptions and insights did you have about that target audience? Um, and, and how did you navigate that? Yeah, I think in the early days for a lot of companies, and this was true for Peloton, uh, the founders are the target, which totally makes sense. You come up with this idea because you see something wrong in, in the world and that you want to go fix. But um, and and that definitely for Peloton, our you know the founders were were that early target and and that worked. What I think we then once I joined and we started doing a little bit more research and really um, identifying a broader target, we realized that there was actually a much broader market out there than the type of people that that looked in and acted like our our founders did. So one of the challenges was was kind of making that leap from the gut, these are, you know, I know exactly what appeals to this target because I am this target to saying actually there's this whole other market out there that we're that we can appeal to and there's a much broader segment that we can go address, but they look and feel pretty differently than we do. So you have to kind of take your it becomes I think it kind of shifts from art to science. 
at that point. Obviously, it's always a, a mix of the two, but the balance probably tips to more science because now all of a sudden you're looking at data, you're looking at insights and saying, this is who that big opportunity is that we need to go after. And as I was saying before, I think that big opportunity for us was shifting from that person who really understood indoor cycling and the benefits of indoor cycling, but uh, didn't necessarily have the opportunity to have the convenience of having it at home, to shifting to someone who wasn't necessarily an indoor cyclist, who was probably going to a local gym and doing their fitness routine there. So then all of a sudden we're speaking, we're no longer just speaking to these kind of boutique fitness um, aficionados. We're all of a sudden speaking to the entire gym market. And that's so much broader. And that really does shift the type of story as marketers we want to tell, because it's a totally different challenge that you're going after. Uh, that leads me to a, a, an interesting thought. I don't know if my thoughts are interesting, but I'm assuming they are. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I, just this idea of building tribes. You know, Brian, you mentioned like we're we're going after marketers, like people who identify as that. And, you know, we may have a job title, but we may want to move on or do something else. Um, but there's a certain sort of existence you have. And even I, I finally looked at the definition of Peloton, which is like a group of cyclists. So there's this tribe mentality. Um, did, did either of you? Think about that as sort of a core in your approach, your creative approach, maybe to, to marketing. Yeah, I can start. Um, it definitely for us, we had we one of the early biggest debates inside of HubSpot was who is our persona. We had a persona we called Internet Ian, and Internet Ian was a very technical person, liked open source software, um, was a real hacker. Um, we had a persona called uh, Owner Ollie, which was you know, he was in like, there's a 10 person painting company and they painted houses and he was the owner of that painting company. Or Mary Marketer was the third one. And Mary Marketer, Carolyn is kind of a Mary Marketer, pretty hardcore. Um, and knows what she's talking about, very savvy with technology, but maybe not coding uh, apps on the side. And we debated hard the first five years of HubSpot. Are we selling to Internet Ian or Raleigh or Mary Marketer? And Honestly, that was the biggest, the biggest tension, the biggest argument my co-founder and I have ever had that lasted for years was through the build for it. We ended up building for Carolyn for Mary Marketer. Um, and I think there's a lot of benefit to just picking one persona or one tribe, because then our content can be crafted for Carolyn. Um, our product managers could craft it for Carolyn, our sales approach. It got us much more focused on Carolyn. We built the whole company around, you know, Mary Marketer, and it worked. I would argue that had we picked any of those personas, it would have worked out. In fact, you can make an argument that Owner Ollie, you know, Shopify picked that persona on the, on the B2C side and built an awesome company over there and did a really good job in that. And so I think any of them would have worked. I think what wouldn't have worked would be if we're 14 years in and still arguing about which one to build for, and we peanut buttered across all three. All three were big markets in and of themselves, but picking one and building everything around that persona really worked for us. And we've expanded it since then, but that was the core of it. I totally agree with that. I think that was also a big debate when I started and we first did our segmentation. And we had a lot of conversations with our board around who is that target? And are you sure you picked the right target? And I totally, we had a lot of conversations around how do targets halo to each other. And this is where it does become a little more art than science because no one really knows exactly, you know, what the halo or what the interaction between one target and the other is going to be. But 
we landed in a similar place of this is our target and we're going to build our product around it. We're going to build our content around it. We're going to build our marketing around it. And we're going to feel confident that that's not going to appeal to everyone. And I think that's where brands sometimes stumble is that particularly brands that are at scale, that they do feel like they need to appeal to everyone. So then they can't really um, appeal to anyone because it's just that kind of watered down message in the middle. But being really confident about, you know, this is who our target is and and we're going to speak to them uh, is so important. I think for Peloton, we didn't start out... You know, you you were asking about tribes and community. And often when people talk about Peloton, they talk about the power of the Peloton community in our growth. And it wasn't what we set out to do. Um, It wasn't what the founder set out to do. It wasn't what the marketing team set out to do. But what they did set out to do and what we all set out to do was create an incredible product that people were going to be so um, fiercely loyal to. And when you do that, that's where tribes happen. That's where a community gets involved. That's where word of mouth happens. I think a lot of startups say, and often I I hear this when people ask me for advice, they say, you know, we want to create a community like Peloton did. And it's not the type of thing that you just sort of like, to your point at Brian on hiring marketers at the end, it's like, you don't just like put a press release out and say, okay, we have a community now and go or start a Facebook group. It really, it has to be core. It has to be organic and it has to be core to what the product is. So we created a product, we being not me, the founders and and the product team, um, that really resonated with people and really was changing people's lives. So then they wanted, hopefully, oh, great, Brian being one of them. Um, so uh, so you know, it, it, it was natural that people wanted to then talk about it and they wanted to share it with their friends. So that was something that happened organically. I think it would have been much harder to go the other way and say, let's create a product that goes viral and has a you know fantastic word of mouth and then go build the product for it. I don't think it would have worked as well. Can I ask you a question, Carolyn? Yeah. My sense of it was... So I'm not any kind of hardcore cyclist at all. My sense was you had one persona early on that was like the hardcore cyclist that was stuck inside on a rainy den that would start using it. And then you got the early adopters. And then at some point it was like, oh, actually... Normal mere mortals like Brian Halligan, who just wants to get a workout, and you flip from this kind of small hardcore market to this much bigger market. Is that is that correct, or that just kind of happened organically? Was there a switch you flipped inside of there? I was always curious about that. Really quick, Brian, that echoes a, a question in the audience, which is you know the difference between an early adopter who's like, oh, the, na- the, n- the new and latest greatest thing. Versus a Brian or myself who's like, I'm still doing Bowflex in the in the Bowflex. <laughs> <laughs> that's new technology. <laughs> I know exactly. I think they, they think they're competing with Peloton. So it was Jeff. Yes, yeah, so it was that shift from early adopter to that more mass target. Yeah, um, something we live that that um, has been over the last few years. I would say generally what you described is right, except that it wasn't, re- it wasn't like an out, it wasn't an outdoor biker, which is what you're describing. It was more that boutique fitness person. So someone who was spending a fair amount of money on boutique fitness, they were going to in-person studio fitness, um, you know, in their, you mostly in urban cities. Uh, and it was, you know, but that market's pretty small. So we did, we, there was a moment where we said, okay, we kind of got that market. And oh, by the way, by appealing to that market, um, we actually could reach that much broader person who was just a regular person who wanted to exercise. But I think it was important that we started with that early adopter, that boutique fitness person, because they did get it. You know, and I was saying before about the marketing funnel being pretty tight for those people. 
they understood how fantastic instructor-led fitness was. We just had to show them how great it was at home. Whereas someone like you who fit kind of uh, further up in, if you're thinking of like a overall adopt product adoption curve, you would be kind of later in the adoption curve. You might need a little more convincing that this was a product that you would actually use, that it wasn't going to become a clothes hanger in your closet like every other home fitness equipment. It wasn't the Bowflex that you talked about, Chris. So um, the, you know, the marketing challenges did shift when we shifted to that broader target. But I think you described it pretty accurately. Can I ask Carolyn another follow-up? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know you asked Chris, but yes. I'm, I'm when doing. you two que- a couple questions. So when you well, one, one question, Brian, we only have so much time with <laughs> but go when ahead. you move from that early adopter to like the mainstream people like Chris and me, um, did you look at unit economics in the early adopter and then unit economics? And were they totally different? The cost to acquire someone like me and the retention rate of someone like me? How did that work in the, yeah, how did that work? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, I think, as I said before, we've been so focused on building a great product that retention is always paramount. So um, our retention rates have always been, while everyone kind of focuses on this, the growth of Peloton, what we internally focused on was the, those retention metrics and making sure that people were continuing to ride. We didn't see it a, a difference there. Um, so on the marketing side, yes, we we needed different marketing messages, potentially a little bit of different content to appeal to a, a more mass audience, but we didn't need to fundamentally shift the business because the retention was so good across all of um, the targets. Got it. Fascinating. A, a little more nuts and bolts, you know, in terms of market research and segmentation and sort of the hardcore, boring side of marketing. <laughs> um, what did either of you do? And maybe, Brian, I'll start with you, especially as, as far as identifying that sweet spot of business size and the community of marketer. What, what types of research did you perform to get the data behind uh, those first early steps? Yeah, so... So we had our Ollie business and our Mary business are two different personas. And then the way I like to look at it is if I put a dollar into the Ollie business, how many dollars would come out? If I put a dollar into the Mary business, how many dollars would come out? And this is the you know cost to acquire versus the total lifetime value. And part, part of the reason we picked Mary is the unit economics were pretty good. Um, and the way I look at HubSpot today, it's something like it costs us about $5,000 to acquire a new customer at HubSpot. And the total lifetime value of that customer, if you discount back those free cash flows from that uh, formula before, is about $25,000. And so the unit economics really work in our business. I put a dollar in, I get $5 out. Those unit economics were better in Mary than Ollie. That's a big reason why we picked Mary's is. And Mary, for Ollie, for us, for just back to what Carolyn was talking about, the problem with the total lifetime value for Ollie was the churn rates for I. He, Ollie was going out of business a lot. Ollie wasn't using the product enough. HubSpot was a clothes hanger for him, and he was churning. Whereas Mary, the retention rates were good, and they were improving. That's one of the reasons we picked Mary. That was a key tool and still is a key tool we use to manage HubSpot. Like, where are we going to invest? Are we going to invest more in North America or in Europe? In Asia, we're going to invest more in our enterprise tier or starter tier. We look at everything through the lens of this unit economics to know how to scale. Right. Really interesting. Our, so ours was a little simpler because the math between the Ollie and Mary in that case didn't look that different. Um, so we did more of a traditional segmentation to look at the different um, 
segments. I think the biggest question for us was, as I was saying before, how do they interact together? So when uh, Brian was mentioning before this like hardcore outdoor biker, like that's a segment that we've, and this was a little bit more on the um, qualitative side of research, but that we understood through qualitative research really didn't have any halo to other targets. Like that's a very specific target that while the CAC might be really efficient with them, definitely the lifetime value will be good. They really don't, they don't get you into those other segments. So then you'd need to go separately, go, go build a product and a brand and a market around all those other segments. Whereas the segment that we did focus on did have more of that halo effect. And we realized that by speaking to one, we were actually getting, you know, others around them. So that's how we made the decision of who to focus on for our target. And then what we're, we're about halfway through the conversation. And then I'm like, we're at this point in time now where everything you just said almost went out the window thanks to COVID-19, <laughs> right? Um, and the world has, we're in the midst of this big pivot. And I think most startups and founders are used to pivoting of some sort. Now we're just doing it on a grand global scale. Um, what what shifts did you guys make in the business at, at that point in time? And or um, what kinds of things do you think will stay and leave as we make adjustments uh, in terms of marketing strategy and trends and how we think about it? Carolyn, go ahead. <laughs> um, so I guess a few things. I would say from a marketing perspective, um, you're right. I, from, a, from a startup perspective, things shifting all the time and businesses getting turned on their head and something we were used to. Um, from a marketing perspective, it felt like you know we had to kind of throw all of our... All the things that we just talked about, exactly what you said, kind of out the window. So we had really great research around what people's barriers to purchase are, for example. And um, those changed a lot when all of a sudden the world changed. And so being able to... And so we we had all these marketing plans in place. You know, we, I was pretty um, adamant. We planned a year out. We had campaigns in the works through Christmas that all kind of had to go out the window. So what what i where i think one of the biggest changes was just speed to market of different of of research and also of marketing um i think that's a type of shift in marketing that isn't going to go away so the idea that you know what your customer 6 months ahead of time is you know what message is going to appeal to them 6 months ahead of time i think that all probably feels kind of silly now because we have no idea what the world is going to look like 6 months from now um so being able to create marketing strategies um, kind of overnight and and marketing around them overnight, I think that feels like something that's going to stay. Um, obviously, from a business perspective, the shift to home was very quick. Um, that benefited Peloton, but there's many other businesses that benefited from that as well. But the other side of it is, um, I think, a focus on value. And people have no idea. You know, there's um, obviously you know very high unemployment. People are uncertain. There continue to be more layoffs. People are uncertain about where their businesses are going. So one of the things that was important to Peloton's marketing pre-COVID and is still very important is telling that value story. Of you may, um, you know, it may look. You might have some sticker shock when you see the price of a Peloton bike, but when you think about dividing that across your household, when you think about um, your gym membership, your um, maybe your Headspace uh, subscription, your both last subscription, whatever else you're paying for in the fitness world that you can now consolidate into Peloton. That's a story that we were focused on before, but even more focused on now. That's great. Brian, sort of the same thing. Because especially, how many how many customers are, uh, I mean, I'm, sorry, wow. How many HubSpot customers are there currently? Uh, I forget, but something like uh, 80 or 80 something thousand. The thing that changed for us is we've been 
I mean, we've been trying to push people into the future to move from offline marketing to online marketing, from inside, from outside sales to inside sales, and trying to have people really embrace a total online digital experience, even in B2B. Um, and it really just pulled the future forward for us in terms of what clients need to do. I mean, <laughs> offline marketing doesn't work very well when people are stuck in their home. They're not looking at bill- billboards and uh, they're not in airports looking at signs. Uh, they're not going to the trade shows and stuff like that. And outside selling doesn't work particularly well when everyone's in their home. You don't want a sales trip showing up at your front door at your house. So a lot of the stuff that we're, we've been evangelizing for a long time, I just feel like we've moved forward. I feel like the thing that's funny, people talk about the march of history and that it applies to business, it applies to history, it applies to diversity. It's like history doesn't march. History like crawls along and then it leaps in like, more stuff got done in six months than get done in the last 16 years. And, and uh, it's been really interesting to watch. Uh, my prediction is that two th- like when the dust, if and when the dust settles, let's say it's 2022, I think the world looks more like 2020 than it did like to 2019. And I think the force change the you know, have people really work on creating a great end-to-end customer experience and embracing the internet and all that. I think companies are like mandating it now and want to go back to 2019. I think that's going to be problematic for them. I think they should lean into the changes happening now to make their business more efficient, more productive. And I think that'll work for people. Yeah. I think there's, a, I think there's also just a general curiosity that, you know, companies should have a, like a, my lens is always via innovation and that is a high level of experimentation and trial and error, but there's always like a resource if, if a company is organized to support it resource set aside for experimentation. Um, and whether we're in the a COVID season or before or beyond it, um, how have you guys, either of you approached experimentation with your marketing and brand and like reaching out to different um, customer groups or trying different strategies? Carolyn, maybe I'll, I'll start with you. Yeah, I think that's always been a kind of core part of Peloton's DNA across the company, but um, definitely within marketing as well was just test and learn. And we found so we found early on uh, we kind of started building our business on Facebook as many companies did and um, and other social media platforms and then as we scaled and as, as we needed to reach a broader audience we kind of tested our way into TV and a lot of companies you know were kind of laughing at like what what would a new startup be doing on TV that's you know TV's dying that's nobody's going nobody's watching TV anymore but for us it, it really worked but. Um, it was all about testing our way in. We, you know, we kind of started with like the late night shows that the remnant inventory that you can buy pretty cheap. And then all of a sudden we were in the NFL playoffs and it, it, we didn't get there overnight. It wasn't a big leap of faith. It was, you know, incrementally seeing what, what is our web traffic when, what was our cap look like after each of these spots and, and does that make sense financially? So that's always been a part of um, who we, you know, we our DNA as a company. I don't think that changed in COVID. I think maybe there's some more discipline, you know, for companies whose budgets were cut, maybe there's some more discipline around it because you don't want to take as many risks. Uh, but that's always been kind of core to who Peloton was. I think similarly, Brian, with, with you guys, you know, one of the things that surprised me was inbound the event, right? And, and I think all of us think about like, oh, we should do our festival. Or we should have our own conference or we should, you know, what went into that decision in terms of that being one big experiment that really worked you know, uh, to, to some degree. Uh, so the, our inbound event this year is, is 
the, we typically will get 25,000 ish people to come to the live event and we're going to do it virtually. And I think it's going to be awesome. By the way, we're going to, we built a whole new platform to run it, to try to sort of reimagine that one of the big benefits of inbound is our tribe gets together and engaged. And so we built a platform to enable them to do that. And the speakers are going to be really good. So I'm psyched about it. The nice thing about doing it virtually is we typically don't get a whole lot of people flying in from Japan and Singapore and Australia and places like that. And we're just going to have a much bigger, much more diverse audience from around the world that we're going to be able to reach. So I'm, there's some big benefits to, uh, to doing uh, events virtually. And I don't think we'll ever go back to 100% live. I think we'll always have at least a hybrid angle to it. In general, though, the way I think about experimentation is like everything we do at HubSpot is heavy experimented. And, you know, the thing that happens to companies as they get bigger is they do slow down. And it's like, one of the things I complain about as a founder is like, the more people we add, you think you get more stuff done, you actually get less stuff done. Um, and so what I try to focus on is just doing fewer things and doing them well. What I've noticed about myself in, in times of crisis, especially the last six months, is I was very patient on decision-making and let it kind of play out and let the bottoms up happen and building consensus. I've completely flipped it. Things that would have taken months, I decide in minutes these days. Uh, and uh, the other thing that's changed is transparency. Like I've always been pretty transparent. But people just want to hear from their leadership and they want, I mean, you see this even with politicians for better or worse. They want to hear from people. Uh, they really want to hear straight talk, not spin talk from their politicians and whatnot. And I feel like it's the same thing for CEOs and founders of companies. They want to hear more from you. So I'm doing weekly Ask Me Anythings. I'm all over our wiki. I'm all over Slack. And I'm much more transparent. So my style, I have like peacetime and wartime sort of management style. I've been in wartime for the last six months. I'm still in wartime. We'll see over the next six months what happens. Well, so what, it's, it's, it's interesting because what you're talking about is culture, right? Company culture. And a lot of times it, it does stem from the founders. Carolyn, you talked about this with the original founders about like they wanted to make the community for them. And then you saw like some opportunity to, to expand that. Um, with scale, how do you salvage culture? Um, or What did you see at, at Peloton during your time there? Yeah, I think it's a, it I agree with everything Brian said. I think it it is really hard to scale a culture. It's probably the hardest thing a company does. I think everything else you can kind of put the right processes in place to scale, but when you're used to so when I joined Peloton and I was the first marketing hire, um, you know, then I had one person, then I had two people. It was a very different running my team was very different than what it looked what it looked like, you know, a month ago. And it was very informal. It was very, you know, they would text me when they wanted something from me. And that was that. And all of a sudden, that didn't really work anymore. So you do have to start to put um, processes in place because an informal culture like that, because it doesn't scale, I think it starts to favor certain types of people, like who has a relationship with with the CEO or the founder or the team lead. and, and And that obviously, you know, becomes dangerous. So you do have to put some processes in place. And I think also really think about what matters to you and your culture, whether it's the entire company or whether it's, it's the team. Um, so something that, you know, for my team, like not letting perfect be the enemy of the good was really important to me. So when Brian was talking about, you know, we just had to make decisions quickly. That's exactly what happened at, at Peloton over the last few months of we all of a sudden were thrown in 
our every single marketing campaign and plan we had in place was thrown out the window overnight. We needed a new marketing plan. We needed a new brand positioning. We needed everything needed to be done. And oh, by the way, you know, those of us with kids, myself included, now have two kids at home with no child care, and my husband was sick, and like there wasn't time to do everything. So, you know, being able to trust my team and let them really run, you know, me have one conversation with them about how I thought we should change things, and then they can run with it. That became really important. So. I would say overall, you know, having your core, uh, spending time thinking about what are those core values and really sticking to those over time, but knowing that the way those core values come to life may actually shift because you may have to get to some more formal processes than you were used to within a small culture. Definitely. And I think with any sort of change or shift, you know, in those things, just kind of going back to... Um, uh, the idea of just growth and, and, and looking at things like COVID and how companies shift. We also have this cultural conversation around diversity. Um, has that affected how either of you have approached your business, either internally or externally and consumers, especially Brian, with servicing so many other businesses that probably have a goal to, you know, to increase diversity or reach diverse consumers? Um, how have you guys found that to show up in, inside the HubSpot wall? Yeah. Yeah. Uh... I just say the early days of HubSpot, we hired a bunch of our friends from business school and they all kind of look like us. There's a lot of white dudes um, and a lot of white dudes in their 30s. And that's problematic for a whole number of reasons. Um, and we waited way too long to wake up and realize that, holy crap, this, this is not it's not morally right and it's not sustainable. Like you make worse decisions when that happens. I think the biggest issue that it caused for us in those early days was someone like Carolyn would come in and interview with HubSpot and she'd look around and she'd just be like, this is not my tribe. These are not my people. And so we started taking diversity and inclusion super seriously about five, six years ago and really dug in and we made huge progress on gender. I'll give you a metric on gender. Um, 40, uh, five years ago, 47% of our employees were women. Only 27% were of our managers were women. This is just terrible. Now it's 47 and 47. Um, you know, three of my direct reports women, three of my board uh, members are women. We have made huge progress there. We have a ton of work to do on black people, we just have a very low percentage and it's, and it's not right. It's definitely not right. And I'm embarrassed about it. And we've got a ton of work left to do there and we're going to do the work. And I think we'll make the same level of progress with black people as we did with women. Here's what I would say that's, that's changed. Like if I look at the slope of the curve on diversity of employees and what they care about, like the current generation employees, they care about DNI a lot. I mean, a lot more than my generation did, for example. And I think it's a good thing for a million different reasons. The George Floyd killings push it up like this. I mean, there's like a, it, it, it's night and day, whereas people cared about it and were interested in it. And now it's a passion of theirs. And here's the thing. Even if you don't think it's a morally smart thing to do to have a diverse team, and it's, you know, even if you don't buy and you make better decisions, if you want to build a great company today, 
you need to build a great culture and you need to pull people in with that great culture. And a great culture doesn't exist if it's not super diverse. Everyone wants to work on a diverse team. Everyone wants to work for a diverse team. Whether you're a middle-aged white man or not, and you're just going to have a hell of a time attracting and retaining talent unless you've got a serious commitment to diversity and diverse teams. So I think it's changed. I think, actually, so much is changing about the employee marketing. Like The changes that happened in marketing back 14 years ago are, are mimicked in the changes that are happening today with employees. Like I think your company has two products. You've got a product you're building for your customers. And if it's a great product, you'll pull those customers in, right? You've got a product you're building for employees. And if you've got a great product here, you'll pull employees and retain them. The other name for that product you're building for employees is your culture. And a big part of culture is DNI, and it's a much, much more important part of culture than it was right. three years ago, and 30 years ago, and 300 years ago. So I think it's really interesting. We think of having two products, and the product we're building for our employees is changing. It's changing past. Uh, I, I, I missed most of what you said. I just want to talk more now. <laughs> it's like, I want to be able to just talk about this stuff. Um, Carolyn, where's your chalkboard? No, it's just... Uh, no, I, guess. I have my children's art behind me. <laughs> that, that's, that's way better. Um, no, but I mean, was there, you know, as far as you're concerned, was there um, uh, an effort or, or a system of thinking around diversity in, in uh, Peloton? Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything Brian said. I think it is something... Um, it is something that has culture has always been really important to Peloton and to the founders and to all of us in the leadership team. I think what constitutes a great culture to, to his point has evolved. And when I started, I was um, one of the first women on the senior team and that came with challenges. I think we have made by, you know, by having me on the senior team and then hiring more senior women, we made a lot of progress on gender diversity. We made less on racial diversity and, um, I think this was this was a moment in time that was definitely a wake up call that um, Peloton, as every company probably needs to do better, where I think companies have um, succeeded more than others in the last few months is um, really make kind of really looking at themselves in the mirror and not just thinking about kind of the superficial stuff, but like, what do we really need to change? And do we need to, you know, throw our hiring practices out the window and start over? Do we need to um, change the way that we promote people and what's our professional development look like and um, really kind of make holistic changes from the beginning? And then, you know, something that was important to us at Peloton was making also uh, commitments to be better citizens in the world. So making a financial commitment to to um, to to other kind of supporting organizations and where I think some of the brands that didn't didn't fare as well as as uh, Peloton and sounds like HubSpot were ones that kind of just focused on the what's the marketing message and you know what's the post we're going to put on LinkedIn or what are we going to write on Instagram tomorrow and not really looking themselves in the mirror and saying like we actually need a bit of a restart on our culture and that's something I would say you know that Peloton was more focused on. That's great, and you know it, this all sort of leads into competition. You can't be in business without having a competitor. You, and uh, I'm just curious as to how either of you have approached competitor sets, especially as you know you got magic mirrors popping up, or you know dare I say Salesforce. Um, as a, <laughs> as just you've got these consumers. We have, so we have, how do you we have, that 
What did you say, Brian? We have tons of competitors. Yeah. So how did you? How do you? How do you stay on top? Like, how do you keep abreast of what they're doing and, and make sure you're staying ahead of the curve? And, and I had I had a professor in business school, Arnaldo Hacks, and he taught a strategy class. And he had a great expression. He said, "Watch your competitors. Watch them very carefully, Brian. Watch your competitors, but never follow them." And I thought that was really good advice. And I think a lot of people are tempted to do that. Now, I think the companies that are doing really well these days are ones that aren't just building a mousetrap for their customers, but they're building a better customer experience. So the, I remember in business school, people used to say, you need, your product's got to be 10 times better than your competition to build a big company. I think today's the lesson really is your go-to-market, your customer experience needs to be 10 times better than your competition to build a big company. And if I just think of myself and maybe you guys like this morning, let me tell you about my morning. I woke up this morning and first thing I did, well, I woke up on a purple mattress this morning. I put on my Warby Parker glasses. I picked up my phone and I played the Grateful Dead on Spotify. I came downstairs and played with my dog and I have a bunch of Chewy toys I got from Chewy.com. I wrote on my Peloton. I shaved with my dollar shave club. I actually didn't do that. And I put on my stitch thick shirt. And what's interesting about my morning and about many of our mornings is all those products I used this morning, none of those companies existed 10 years ago. They're all brand new companies. The other thing that's interesting about it, they all basically sell the same product to the company that they disrupted. They just sell it in a better way. The end-to-end experience is better. I think that's where the competitive advantage is being created. And I think of HubSpot versus Salesforce.com. Salesforce.com is hard to buy, hard to set up, hard to use, hard to own. And we're watching them, but we're not following. We're trying to make HubSpot easy to buy, easy to set up, easy to use, easy to, uh, easy, easy to own. Like coming in a disruptive angle, not just from a product side, but a go-to-market side, I think is really key these days. Yeah, I would I would say it differently, but I think we're saying the same thing, which is focusing on what your consumer needs and building a product um, and a service that's right for them versus spending a lot of time thinking about your competition. I think we, you know, you mentioned the Warby Parker. We, you five years ago, everything was the Warby Parker of you know hearing aids, the Warby Parker of fast food, and it was like I didn't even understand how you could be the Warby Parker of some of these things people said. I think now you hear that with now with Peloton success. Um, and everyone said, by the way, when Peloton started, we're the Warby Parker of uh, fitness. And now everything's the Peloton of boxing, the Peloton of, you know, fill in the blank. And in my mind, like, while well, flattering, because it does feel like culturally, okay, we've made it that everyone wants to be the Peloton of something. What all those companies are doing is focusing on our success and not theirs. And if you spend time really thinking about who is my, going back to the target conversation, who is my consumer? what is it that that they really need and go and build a product around them. To Brian's point on um, a great product experience, one of the things that early on uh, a big decision was made that Peloton was going to deliver for in most markets, deliver our own products. And while that seemed crazy to get into the logistics business, that was one of the pain points that we saw with our consumers is that they were making a really big financial commitment to Peloton and buying a bike and taking a risk on a, you know, startup, um, company and they were having a really bad delivery experience and they were blaming that on Peloton, even though it was a third-party delivery company. So we invested in logistics and people might've thought that was crazy, but that's what was right 
for the Peloton consumer. And so, you know, take that decision and, and think about it in which, whatever world your startup lives in, but who is your consumer and what are the right decisions to make that product great for them rather than spending a lot of time thinking about, well, my competitor has, um, you know, free shoes, so we need free shoes. That's great. With, with about four minutes left, I, I want to kind of move into some advice. Um, a, a good friend of mine, George Brett, wrote a book and a, a Forget the title of the book, so sorry, George. But um, it is it's about it's all oh, first-time leader, and one one of the stats that he talks about is that most C-suite executives that get hired into a company fail or leave within the first year. Um, and he said one of the principles of getting over that, among others, is this idea of get in and get a win. You know, because it builds trust and rapport and all these things. So, Carolyn, when you first walked into the doors of Peloton with your your helmet on and, and ready to work. Um, what what were some of those wins or what was a win that you can point to as an example that kind of built trust and started to put you in the position of success? Yeah, you know, I wish I'd had that advice going in because I, I don't think I had a lot of wins. <laughs> I think the mistake I made was thinking that everyone saw the world in the way that I saw the world. And I come from, I worked at Pepsi and I worked at Digitas and Express account. And so I kind of took for granted that everyone knew what consumer segmentation was and everyone knew why it mattered. And everyone believed that we needed a brand positioning and that's what was going to get us to the next step. And so I spent a lot of time at the beginning doing that kind of fundamental marketing, the steps that I felt like every company needs these things to succeed without actually really spending the time with the senior leadership team and getting them to understand why marketing mattered, why this type of marketing mattered. So I would say the wins, they might not have come, come at the beginning. They came later once I really got people to understand, you know, what a, got a product manager or a COO or a logistics person to understand this is why it really matters that we're all building a product for our one target. Or this is why we all need to believe in what this brand positioning is because that's going to infiltrate everything we do. And really, you know, once I started focusing more on that and building those relationships, the work kind of sold itself rather than kind of starting with the work and then building the relationships later. Beautifully stated. Um, Brian, similarly, but different. Um, there's this difference between a co-founder and a CEO, and you are both. Um, and some people don't know whether they're good at one or the other, or they should step back and, and hire a CEO, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how did you approach that decision of staying on board as both co-founder and CEO? Um, and would you have done anything different kind of in hindsight? I think the times have changed on that. And I think most investors look at the Steve Jobs. I think Steve Jobs changed this where he got thrown out for an executive from Pepsi um, and then got hired back and how we turned that company around. And I think the attitude when I was starting my career was, you know, get the founder out of there and bring someone experienced in. I think that's totally changed in the last 10, 15 years where even though the co-founder, you're, you're a lot of you on the, on the video are probably co-founders. You're probably quirky. I'm quirky. My co-founder is quirky. I'm not central casting for a CEO by any means. Um, but I think there's some, there's a bully pulpit that the co-founder has that, uh, I think the company ends up working around your person. So if you think you you can do it and your investors are cool with you, just try to get better and, and try to improve, join a CEO group, read as much as you can get really good quality feedback from your team. That's anonymous 
and, and, and power on. I've been at it for 14 years and just trying to get better. So far, so good. Uh, I guess we have one more, one more minute to go. Just shameless plug, where can people go to find more information? Um, where, where can we see your kids, Carolyn? Uh, <laughs> I've given them a lot of lollipops to not come in. So I'm hoping <laughs> three minutes to spare. They're still I'm, eating them. I'm lurking. I just heard footsteps. I'm like, uh. <laughs> oh, sorry. No, but where, where did, oh. did, any sort of website or social handle you want to shout out? Paul Brian. Okay, right. Uh, I guess you can follow me on at, at B. Halligan on Twitter. I pontificate on there from time to time about these types of topics if they interest you. Awesome. Um, I'm good about doing that, but I guess on LinkedIn, Carolyn Tishblatchett on LinkedIn. Great. And my name is Chris Denson, not Densonopolis. That's a long story. But um, with that said, thank you both for, for doing this. This has been great. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us. Uh, and now we'll welcome back Kate. Hello, Kate. I am back. Thank you all so much for that incredible conversation. Chris, Brian, Carolyn, what a privilege to have you. And on behalf of our startups in the Mass Challenge community, uh, thank you for joining us this early Monday morning. Uh, so we had a great conversation, as, as you all know, uh, that started with customer-centric marketing, but we covered an incredible array of topics from uh, your employees to leadership, to surviving COVID and building a stronger brand. Uh, so I hope you all enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. For those of you who are uh, new to the Mass Challenge community, welcome. Uh, please feel free to learn more at masschallenge.org. Uh, we'd love to have you involved in what we're doing to support startups. And to our startup community, thank you all for being here this morning. Uh, we know there were some very specific questions around uh, how to build your own marketing strategy, how to use tools like HubSpot for startups. Uh, we'll be uh, following up to set up additional opportunities for you to work hand-in-hand -hand with the HubSpot team and our group of experts uh, on that. So more to come. Uh, check out your newsletters in Slack. With that, uh, please do take a minute to fill out the poll and we'll say thank you very much.